I'm reading this morning from the book of James. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there, if you will. And I'd like to read the first five verses of James chapter 1, which is actually quite similar to the first five verses of Romans 5 that your pastor read today, which tells us that James and Paul were both emphasizing the same thing with regards to Christian maturity and Christian growth. And so I'd like us to read these first five verses this morning, and then we'll take time to look at them carefully. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, or we would say its complete impact on you. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, by the way, you do, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As you can tell, I'm not originally from the West. Now, my, West, my wife is from Denver, Colorado. She's a Westerner. I was born in the South. Fact is, I was born in South Georgia, and I was raised in South Carolina. So I'm a Southerner. Somebody said, I'm Southern bred, I'm Southern fed, and when I die, I'll be Southern dead. So that's, that's <laughs> probably the best way for me to put it. And uh, my grandfather was a uh, practicing physician, and they lived in the southernmost county in South Georgia that borders the state of Florida. And so as a child growing up, I used to go to my grandparents' home every summer and spend at least two weeks there with my grandmother and grandfather. And so, of course, I have many, many fond memories and one of the memories that I have was a gentleman that used to work for my grandmother, particularly in the summertime. He is what we would call in those days a day laborer. So she would pay him for the work that he did that day, and maybe she would pay him if he worked all week at the end of the week. But what I remember the most about this gentleman was his name. Now, I don't really know what his given name was at birth. I only know what we called him. And this gentleman would come to my grandmother's house, would work there, and he always was a help, and he was always a blessing. He would cut grass, he would plant flowers, pick weeds, trim edges, whatever my grandmother needed him to do. But what I remember the most about him was this name. And his name was Trouble. How would you like to have that name? What's your name? Trouble. And when Trouble used to come to my grandmother's house, Trouble always came to be a help and to be a blessing. Let me ask you a question this morning. How often does trouble come to your house? Have you ever stopped to consider that when trouble comes, trouble comes to be a help and to be a blessing? That's really 
what I want to talk to you about this morning, when trouble comes. And really, that's what the first five verses of the book of James is all about. So this morning, I'd like to take the idea of when trouble comes, and, and let's look at these verses, and we're going to look at three things this morning. Number one, the first thing we're going to understand is the reality of trouble. We read here, beginning in James chapter 1, where James writes these words. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings. Now, this book, a couple of things that are interesting about James, out of the 27 books in the New Testament, James is the first book that was written. So what we have here is the first inspired writing to the New Testament believers. And it was written by a very unique individual. It's a fellow named James. Of course, the question is, which James is it? Because in the New Testament, there are at least three Jameses. There's James, the brother of John, one of the 12 disciples. There's one called James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less is what he was called. He was also one of the 12 disciples, but he wasn't as well known as the other James, so I guess he got the name James the Less. And then there's the third James, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus. By the way, do you know how many brothers Jesus had? The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, he had four brothers. Do you know their names? Their names are James, Joseph, Judah, or Jude, the book of Jude, and then a brother named Simon, and then it says he had sisters. So he had a very large family. You could say it was a homeschooling family back in the Bible days. <laughs> and Jesus is the oldest of the brothers. So which brother is this? Well, we know it's not James, the brother of John, because he was the second martyr of the church. So by the time this book was written, that, that James had already passed away. James the last, one of the 12 disciples, is not as well known. So history and tradition says that the writer of this book was the half-brother of Jesus, James. And something unique about him is that he really didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection from the dead. And the Bible says out of the ten appearances that Jesus made after he resurrected from the dead, he appeared to three individuals. He appeared to Peter, he appeared to Mary, and he appeared to James. And it's at that point that James became a believer in his brother Jesus as the Son of God. And that's why it opens up with him saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went on to become the lead elder or the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So essentially his congregation were Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. And that's who he's writing. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, that's Jewish believers, then notice he says, in the dispersion. Other translations say scattered abroad. So who are these people? These are Jewish believers from Jerusalem who are probably members of James's congregation and they have been driven out of the country of Israel because of their faith. They were persecuted and they're living in foreign lands 
And today we would call them, not the dispersion, we would call them refugees. So he is writing to members of the congregation who are now in a very difficult situation. They have been driven out of the country because of their faith and they are living as refugees. And what does James do? He addresses the troubles and the problems of life that they are facing. And you know what's so interesting to me? Is that this very first inspired writing is dealing with the most practical subject that all Christians face, and that is dealing with the troubles of life. How many of you have trouble? Someone said a Christian regarding trouble is in one of three places. Either he's in trouble, or he just got out of trouble, or he's starting to get back into trouble again. All of us here face trouble. So what does he mean when he says in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or troubles of various kind? What does he mean by trouble? Well, the word means pressure. It's something on the outside that affects us on the inside. So we would call it pressure. We would say it's the circumstances of life that we have to face living where we are and what we're experiencing within our life. The Apostle Paul spoke about trouble specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he actually gives five kinds of troubles that God's people face. Number one, he talks about necessities. Those are financial troubles. Secondly, he talks about infirmities. Those are physical problems. Third, he talks about uh, what, what he calls reproaches or words spoken against you. So those are verbal trials, attacks that come upon you. And then fourthly, he spoke about persecutions. Those are spiritual issues where you are persecuted for your faith. It could be in your family. It could be in your workplace. It could be in various situations in your neighborhood. And then fifthly, he talks about distresses. That's emotional issues you face. Perhaps a, a distressing problem within your family or a distressing situation in your workplace or wherever. And essentially what he is saying is these are the pressures that the people of God face. And notice he says, count it all joy when you meet those trials. The King James says when you fall into them. I actually like the word fall better. It's like the guy who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The man who came along and helped the man who was going down to Jericho. And the Bible says he fell among the thieves. In other words, the thieves were looking for him. He was not looking for them. When you and I meet trouble, generally we were not looking for trouble, but trouble is looking for us. We fell into it. And the point he's making is you have trouble not because you're in trouble. Now as a kid growing up, you understand what it's like to get into trouble. 
And generally you get in trouble because of what you're doing or what you're not doing. And so we grow up with the mentality that if I'm having trouble, it's because I've been bad. And therefore the trouble that I'm facing in my life means, as a Christian, that God is somehow punishing me or God is against me or I I have this problem because I must be wrong. And I want to make it very clear that when you understand trouble from a divine perspective, you're not having trouble because you're in trouble. You're having trouble because God, this is God's way of changing you. It's the way God works. And once you start to realize that, then it begins to click and make sense of what God is doing in my life. And by the way, the word trouble here is not speaking about something that you can just quickly resolve. We're not talking about a headache. You know, how was your day? I've had trouble all day long. I've had a headache. Now, I'm not diminishing a headache. Please understand. But this word trouble is not a person with a headache for the morning. It's a person who has perpetual migraines that never go away. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's something that comes into your life that's actually a changed you. It, it's affected you. It's getting cancer. It, it's a child that has particular difficulties. We would say it's something that's come into your life that's actually affecting the way that you live. We would say it's a new normal. My life was normal. Troubles come now. I've got a new normal. And I'm having to live with that. And I'm having to adjust to this. And so here's James writing to refugees. Could you imagine what it would be like to be living in a community, especially in the city of Jerusalem, Perhaps you were educated, perhaps you had a good job, a nice home, you lived with your family, you had wonderful holiday seasons, life was full of peace, and suddenly trouble has come, you've been driven out of your country, you're living in a foreign land with a foreign language, with foreign customs and culture. You're probably living in a house with a lot of other people because you can't afford to live there. And you, you try to get a job, but you, you can't get a job based on what, where you came from. And life, there's loneliness, there's desperation, there's fear, there's, there's persecution. There's rege- That's what they were experiencing. It was a brand new normal. And so I'm speaking to folks this morning. All of you here are facing Things that are different. So that's the reality. And that leads me to the second point I'd like to make this morning, and that is then what's the reason for it? I mean, we all ask the question, don't we? Lord, why? Maybe you've asked, Lord, why me? So what is the reasons why we go through trouble? And this is so important that we embed it in the way that we think. And he gives us the reason here, as he says, beginning in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, that is, he expects that you understand this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
Why is it that we go through trials? Number one, the first of two truths that we have to understand and learn is our faith is being put to the test. In other words, God is showing to you that you really do believe. It's not God having to figure out if you're a believer, because God knows that. It's your faith being tested. Because we live and we walk by faith. It is that initial faith that you place in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. It is the opposite of you working your way and earning your way to heaven. It is believing that Jesus Christ came into this world as God in human flesh, died on a cross, resurrected from the dead, and you have placed your faith in him. And now that faith in him that you are trusting for your eternal salvation is being put to the test. Is it really for real? Jesus came to Peter before he was crucified. And he made this interesting statement. He said, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. Peter was getting ready to go through the trial of his life. Because on the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied the Lord. His faith was tested. He failed. And the real test of Peter is, would he come back in the face of his failures? When you and I go through trials and troubles, even our own failures, a trial is like the two sides of a coin, the heads and the tails. On one side of a trial, you have God. On the other side of the trial, you have Satan. On one side of the trial, God is trying to build your faith. On the other side of the trial, Satan is trying to destroy your faith. And you and I are being put to the test to show the genuineness, the reality of our faith. Because how do you know that you have real faith? Until you go through a trial and you trust the Lord and you come out of that trial and you see that the Lord is real and you really are his child. And so trials are a constant testimony of our own personal faith. But there's a second reason you and I go through a trial. And he tells us here in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith is producing something. There's a positive benefit. What is that? He says it is producing steadfastness or endurance or patience. You can use any of those words. And notice what he says in verse 4. And let steadfastness, endurance, have its full effect. So you come into a trial. It's a long trial. It's a difficult trial. And what are you having to do in that trial? You're having to trust God. And in that trust, you are developing a certain kind of spiritual muscle. Have you ever watched the Olympics? Have you ever noticed the different body types between a sprinter who runs a 100-yard dash and a marathon runner? You ever notice that? The guys that run the sprints, what does their body look like? 
it looks like they have more muscles than they need. Have you ever noticed that? Big old thick thighs, ripple board stomach, big old arms. And they need a certain kind of strength to run 100 yards. But have you ever noticed the body type of the guys that run marathons? They look like they actually need muscles because they're so thin. They have long, skinny legs, long, skinny arms. Now, let me ask you a question. What seems to be more difficult to you, running 100 yards or running 26.2 miles? Obviously, the marathon runners have a certain kind of strength. We call it endurance. What is endurance? It's sticking it out. It's not quitting when you want to quit. It's not throwing in the towel. It's staying with it. Being parents require a lot of endurance. We have, my son Stevens here, I use him as an illustration all the time. He just happens to be in church this morning. (laughs) They have four boys and the oldest is four. Why are you laughing? (laughs) They used to understand what sleep was. And there are so many different things that happen when you have four under, four and under. And it is challenging and it is hard and it is difficult and it is really good because you're being stretched out. That's what what endurance is. Endurance is faith being stretched out. So why? What's the point? Well, he says here, he says, let steadfastness have its full effect. That, he says, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And right here he's telling us the whole reason why we go through trouble. And it's something that we, we, we understand it in our head, but it's really hard for us to accept in the realities of life. And that is God is in the process of maturing you as a believer. Let me say it again. God is in the process of maturing you as a believer. We could say it this way. He's growing you up in the faith. He is molding and shaping your character, who you are as a person, into the likeness of his own son. Because when you understand the gospel, we understand the gospel is not just believing in Jesus so I can go to heaven. Because the full gospel teaches us that we are justified by faith, that we are ultimately glorified by faith, that is, we become like Jesus Christ, and in the process, we are being sanctified by faith. What God is doing is making you like Jesus, and how does he do it? He does it through trouble. And you go through this process where you're having to endure, and what is it that he's changing? What is it? Well, think of it this way. When you have to be patient, what is going on in your emotions? 
can you describe it? Or can you just emotionally say something like, I don't know if I can do this. See, maturity is actually the maturing of your emotions. And you can't be spiritually mature and be emotionally immature. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't be a spiritually mature person and always angry. You can't be a spiritually mature person and hating people. Boy, I love Jesus, but I sure hate people, you know? (laughs) You can't be that way. You can't be mature as a Christian and be mean. You can't be mature as a Christian and be selfish. So what God is doing in the midst of trouble is he's actually changing your emotions. You're going from a caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. You're being changed. It's kind of like the way you make a pearl. Have you ever stopped to understand what a pearl is? A pearl is the only gem that comes from a living organism. It comes from an oyster. And that oyster lives in the bottom of the ocean in a shell and everything is happy and content until a little piece of sand comes into that shell and it comes up and it nestles next to the side of the oyster and it begins to rub it and irritate it and over time that oyster reacts and he excretes what is known as knacker and that knacker over time hardens and it is shaped and it forms around that oyster and it becomes a beautiful pearl. And a diver goes to the bottom of the ocean, and he gets the shell and he brings it up and he pops it open. And there's a pearl. What is a pearl? A pearl is an irritated oyster. That's all it is. <laughs> what is a mature Christian? It is a Christian who has gone through trouble. And they have stayed faithful and they have sought the Lord and God has changed them and made them more like Jesus. How many of you would like to be like Jesus? Would you like to be like Jesus? You can be. How do you do it? Trouble. That's how it works. And so what happens God takes somebody that's hard to love and they come into your life. And what does God teach you? Genuine selfless love by learning to love them. God brings into your life circumstances of sorrow that break your heart. And what does God do? He teaches you joy in the midst of pain. You go through constant inconveniences. And what does God teach you? He teaches you flexibility and sympathy. You ever flown on an airplane with a crying baby? That's really, really cool. (laughs) Because it's real obvious who doesn't have children. Or they've raised them and they forgot how to do it. Or they would say to themselves, I would not let my child do that. And so there are some who are irritated. And there are some who are compassionate. And say, can I help you? God allows responsibilities to come in our life that we don't really want to teach us to be trustworthy. God brings people in our life who intrude upon us because we all want our privacy to teach us to surrender our rights. God 
even permits into our life the struggle with evil to teach us how to have self-control. You see, the point he's saying is, trials are God's schoolhouse of Christian maturity. So that leads me to my last point, and that is, so what are we supposed to do? So how do you respond, okay? Okay, I wish I could give you a magic pill that sort of just makes it all good. But that's the whole point of how it doesn't work. Because endurance is not a pill you can take and you got it. You know, I want patience and I want it right now. So how do we respond? And he tells us in verse 1 to do something that is so abnormal. It is so not natural. And that is, my brothers, when you fall into these trials, when you meet these trials, what's the first thing you're to do? You're to count it all what? Come on now, say it. Count it all what? Who does that? Really? Hi, sweetheart. How was your day today? Oh, it's wonderful. I got fired from my job. It's great. (laughs) Well, I had a great day too because I went down to the grocery store and somebody backed into the car. Man, it's been an awesome day. (laughs) I mean, that's like, it's like you just don't do that. So to count it all joy obviously means that you view it differently. You see it differently. One of my wife's favorite television programs in the past has been Antique Roadshow. Have you ever watched that exciting program? (laughs) My wife and I have totally different uh, television viewing habits. My wife loves the, the food channel, Food Network. I don't get it. I mean, how many ways can you cook chicken, all right? <laughs> and then things like Antique Roadshow or, or Hallmark. I, I like things where things are blown up. <laughs> if, it, if it's not blown up, I'm not really interested in it. <laughs> so she watches Antique Roadshow, and you've probably watched it. Somebody brings in a piece of junk, I mean, uh, uh, an antique. <laughs> and they have this guy that comes down from generally New York City, slightly eccentric, and can tell you about that table. I mean, he knows so much about it. He knows the tree that it came from. <laughs> he knows when it was made. He, know, he knows the man who made it. He knows the man's first wife's name. He knows the man's second wife's name. He knows everything there is to know about it. And you're sitting there, and the whole time you are anticipating the, the value of it. And suddenly when the value pops up on the screen, everybody's shocked that this thing is worth so much. That's the point. When you and I look at trouble, we don't really see it as valuable. Fact is, we don't like it. We, We, according to the Bible, we actually despise it. We don't treat it as valuable. But Peter made an interesting statement when he said that the trying of your faith is more precious than Does anybody know the next word? Gold. If I ask you this morning, I'm going to give you an option. Here's a bar of gold that's worth about $600,000. And here is a real trial in your life that you're probably going to have to live with for the next three or four years. It's going to be really, really hard. Which one do you value the most? Which one would you choose? 
And yet Peter says that the trial is actually more valuable to the, than the gold. So when he says count it all joy, he's not speaking about the way you feel. Because he's actually maturing your emotions. That way you feel is actually what he's dealing with. Because what God is doing is what you really want anyway. You want to be different. You want to change. You want to be a better Christian. You want to be more like Jesus. And what he's asking you to do is to count it all joy. Here's what he's saying. Okay, Lord, you're in control. And I'm going to choose not to find my joy and delight in the circumstance. But Lord, I'm going to find my joy and delight in you. And then you know what you do? You run to your Bible. And you open it up. And you start reading it. And how many of you have ever read your Bible in the midst of a trial and it seems like the words are jumping off the page? Like the book of Psalms. You say, which Psalm do you read? It doesn't matter. They all work. And you start reading them, and all of a sudden, God comes to you. We all pray better when we have problems. We all read our Bibles more when we have problems. We all confess our sins more when we have problems. And to count it all joy doesn't mean that I necessarily feel happy. It means that I seek to find my joy in the Lord. That's the first thing. And by the way, if you don't get to first base, you can't get to second base. And what's the second point? And he tells us here, I've already read it. For he says, he says in verse 3, For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. What is the second command? Essentially, what he says is, stick it out. Let steadfastness have its full effect. For example... You go through a trial, you begin to seek the Lord. It's not a one-time thing. And every day you determine, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to read your word. And before long, you find that your real delight is in the Lord. I have many, many friends in the ministry. My best friends are preachers. And I've watched my best friends go through some of the deepest trials and come out with shining joy. Whether it's a son that was killed in an accident or a church that turned on the pastor or some great event and disappointment and heartache comes in their life and instead of reacting against the Lord, they sought the Lord and they stayed with it. And suddenly you see them today and they're different. That's what he's saying. Stay under the trial. Stay with it. That's what it means to endure. And then finally, the, the last thing to do, which is sort of the obvious thing. Verse 5, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That giveth to all men without reproaching him. In other words, God, God doesn't get irritated because you have a problem and you come and ask him for help. You know, we, we're like that. Don't bother me, kid. You got a problem, go figure it out. I don't want to figure it out. You're big enough. That's not the way God is. God is actually generous. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is seeing life through God's lenses. 
How does God look at life? Well, obviously, he doesn't look at life the way we do because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And what you do is in the midst of the trial, you seek the Lord and you say, Lord, please give me wisdom and insight in understanding you and your character and what you're all about and how I'm supposed to rearrange priorities and focal points. And what God does is he, with great generosity, gives you the wisdom that you need. What is James trying to get believers to become like? He tells us in James 3 and verse 13, Who is a wise man among you and endued with wisdom? You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to grow us up to be wise people. And that's the first message that God gives to New Testament Christians. And that trouble actually becomes God's way of maturing us into Christ-likeness. So I think as we begin a new year, which is starting in a couple of days, that God always gives us fresh opportunities every morning to grow, to mature, and to become more like Him. May we pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the gift of wisdom to understand how to see our lives. Lord, give us a greater hunger to grow and mature as Christians. Lord, bless this church. And Lord, mature the saints that are here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.